Thank you guys. That was such a joy to sing about the Lord. I love that last line. His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive. Praise the Lord. Well, let's, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we, we do praise you. And we praise you for the marvelous work that you have accomplished for us, sinners, weak sinners, hopeless without you, uh, incompetent without your Spirit's empowerment, uh, weak. Lord, we, we can do nothing apart from you. And we praise you that in Christ you've given us everything. That we are here this morning and lack no good thing. You've, you've granted it to us all in an extraordinary measure and abundance. And we, we bless your name. And Father, our prayer this morning is that you would help us. Help us to look into your word and to behold wonderful things here. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to prioritize the right way. And Lord, we want to be those people who are adamant about proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us. We want to proclaim you, Father. We want to proclaim the, the Son. We want to proclaim the Spirit. And we want to see Christ exalted in our church, in Fort Worth, and Father, around the world. And we pray that you would help us as we do that this morning. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We'll be back in verses 35 to 39, finishing up a a brief study on the priorities of Jesus. Now, Jesus, in God's perfect plan, only had 33 years of life. That's how old I am. 33 years of life in, in God's design. And in his humanity, he was limited. Uh, he, he, he didn't have, in one sense, as a man, the capacity to do everything. He necessarily had to say no to some things and yes to other things. In short, he had to prioritize the most important things in his life. And the question we're trying to answer this morning is, what did Jesus value the most? What were Jesus' priorities? What did he designate as the most important? What were his primary concerns? We want to see them and adopt them as our own. Because we have all, each of us, if you are a Christian, you've been called to follow him. He is the exemplar. He's the example that we follow. And we want to follow him closely. And so in our text from last week, beginning in verse 35, we saw that the first thing that Jesus prioritized was prayer. And we saw last week that he prioritized prayer because he understood that as a man, he was fully dependent upon God the Father. And that without prayer, he could not have and would not have the necessary strength, power, to do the mission that the Father set him out to do. So through prayer, Jesus obtained the strength that he needed, and he demonstrated to the Father, and he demonstrated to his disciples, in verse 35, his dependency upon God. Likewise, we do the same thing. 
If you live a prayerless life, uh, you are advertising to everyone that you do not need God. I've got this, God. I'll take it from here. It's, it's to forget. When we go a whole day without prayer, it's, it's to forget John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do some things. No. Apart from me, you can do nothing. To go without prayer is to tell God, I know John 15, 5, but I really don't believe it. Right, I'm going to take this into my own hands today. Well, Jesus models for us the importance of prayer. If Jesus needed the Father's help, how much more do you? How much more do I? God has so orchestrated our lives that we will not be able to do the things He's called us to do without prayer. The things we need to do the good works, Ephesians 2.10, that He's created us to do, the things we need come on the other side of prayer. After prayer, God strengthens. God bolsters our confidence. God gives us clarity. He shows us how we can honor Him. And He gives us the strength to do the work He's called us to do. And we also saw that prayer brings remarkable stability in your life. We saw that with Jesus, there was chaos all around Him. But He was calm, collected, focused, not in a panic, not worried about tomorrow. He was stable as a rock. And that's what prayer does. Uh, Prayer brings stability. Because in prayer, you come face to face with the living God. A God who is extraordinarily sovereign, more sovereign uh, than you've probably even come to recognize. Meticulously sovereign over every aspect of your life. Uh, I've heard R.C. Sproul say there is not a maverick molecule in the universe. God is sovereign over all of those things. He's also good. Better, more kind, uh, more loving than you have begun to realize. I can promise you that. And I can speak for myself. He is far kinder than you believe. He's far more generous than you believe. He is not a Scrooge. He's not withholding from you. He has given you it all. That's what Isaiah 55 says. Come to me. You don't even need to bring money. Just come and eat and drink all of this without any price. It's all yours. Why? Because I am a, a, an abundantly good and loving God. He's, a, he's meticulously sovereign. He's abundantly good. And He is unbelievably wise. He makes no mistakes. The week that you just had that feels like an utter wreck, His grace has planned it all. Right? He is sovereign, good, and wise. He's orchestrating the affairs of your life for your good. Do you believe that? When you pray, you come face to face with that God. So you come away from prayer feeling like you can conquer the world. Right? I mean, if I have God at my, my back... What, what am I afraid of? What, what would I ever be fearful of? He's my God. He's for me. He's with me. He's good, sovereign, and wise. I am invincible. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 14 says, With the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. 
You come face to face with God in prayer. You encounter him in prayer. You see him through his word in prayer. You will be invincible. You will, you'll see him and you will not fear. It's because in prayer all is well. Right? That's why one of the songs we would sing in Bible college, we had a prayer meeting uh, and it was a, the old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, prayer Sweet Hour of Prayer, um, that pulls me from a world of care, um, bids me to my Father's throne, make all my wants and wishes known. Some of you are writing me down and saying I messed that hymn up. I probably did, but that's okay. But prayer is, in prayer, it's a sweet, solemn hour, or 15 minutes, or 10 minutes, or or, a breath as you're going into the meeting. But we come face to face with God, and we leave with confidence that He's ours, and all is well. And we can go do what we need to do, and we have the strength we need. And so, Jesus modeled for us this priority. And it makes perfect sense, and we see in His life And he often prioritized prayer above the visible uh, dynamics of his ministry. We saw that prayer, hidden prayer, alone time with the Lord, was the engine of his life. And so too it must be with us. Now that was priority number one. This morning we come to the second priority in Jesus' life. We see that priority in verses 36 to 39. Specifically, In verse 38, and it's the priority of proclamation, or the priority of preaching. To proclaim or to preach is just to announce something, it's to tell something. And this morning, we're going to spend our time looking at that specific priority to conclude this brief series on the priorities of Jesus. So I invite you to stand with me. If you haven't turned to Mark 1, turn there. We'll begin reading in verse 35. Mark 1, verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. You may be seated. The priorities of Jesus. Prayer and preaching. Prayer and proclamation. It's interesting. In the book of Acts, uh, the apostles are getting so swept up with all the ministry that needs to happen. And God, in his wisdom, directs them. Uh, to appoint a new office in the church, Acts 6, deacons to come uh, so that the apostles can dedicate themselves to what two priorities? Prayer and the ministry of the word. This is a, a, a repeated theme throughout scripture. We see God prioritizes or we ought to prioritize prayer and the ministry of the word. And I won't want to convince you, I'm about to cough. Thank you. Um, I want to convince you uh, that the proclamation of the word is not just for me. It's not just for Jason. It's not just for the elders. It's not just for the pastors. But the proclamation of the word is your responsibility as well. 
And I'm going to tie that in at the very end, but I want to tell you that up front so you don't check out and say, oh, okay, this is a pastor sermon. I'm going to check out on this one. No, this is the priority of every believer, all right? Jesus is our model. So I want us to, to look at this passage together knowing that Jesus is setting before us an example that we ought all uh, to follow. Okay, verses 36 to 37 we saw last week describe the search for Jesus. The search was led by Simon Peter, verse 36, and presumably his companions are Andrew, James, and John, uh, who are following Peter in this search. And interestingly, Luke says on this account that some of the crowds are also with them. So it's probably a little bigger band than just uh, Simon and his companions. His companions include some of the crowd that were healed. We know that Jesus, verse 35, has gone off to pray in a secluded place. He's in uh, the Sea of Galilee, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He could be down by the seaside. He could be up in the mountains. And this is a debate. Where do you vacate? Where do you go on vacation? The sea or the mountains? Um, We don't know what Jesus did. He probably did both at different times. But in this case, we're not told what he did. We're just told that he got away by himself so that he could be alone with God. And we're also told, uh, this is the special emphasis of the text, verse 35, is that he did it extremely early in the morning. After a day of exhausting ministry, Jesus gets up early and he goes somewhere alone so that he can be with the Lord. The disciples wake up, Jesus is gone, but the crowd is back. And there's only one man who can deal with this crowd, and that's Jesus. And and it's right for the crowd to come back. They have been healed, they have been delivered from demonic oppression. we, We ought not to just slight them Uh, for superficiality necessarily. And if you were being demonically oppressed, you would want to be delivered, right? Some of you are sick. If Jesus was here, we would ask him to heal you. And we do. We pray that God would do that even now. Uh, So these people are coming to Jesus, rightly so, to be healed, to be delivered. And the disciples are probably seeing what's happening and thinking that Jesus ought to seize the momentum. Here's the, the whole city of Capernaum. They've already seen that Jesus is, he's been doing wonderful things and authenticating himself as the Messiah. And the crowds are, they probably through the night went and told their family, more people have come. And the disciples most likely see this as an opportunity for Jesus to begin ushering in the Messianic kingdom uh, just as promised in the Old Testament. The disciples then come searching for Jesus. And it's interesting, the word search here, uh, it's used most often in a negative way. This is why we think that the disciples are not necessarily happy about Jesus being gone. And so they come searching for him. The word is used usually of pursuing someone in a hostile way. It can be used in a positive sense, but it seems like these guys are not happy with Jesus. Jesus, verse 37, everyone, everyone is looking for you, and you're alone. Don't you know these crowds want to see you? They're all here, and and you've disappeared. They're hunting for him, they finally find him, and they just say, Jesus, what? Everyone is looking for you. 
You can almost hear the disappointment. But what we see here, and what I want to just highlight for you, is that the disciples have an agenda for Jesus' life. You see that? And that agenda is not private prayer and meditation on the Word. Right? It's, it's something other than what Jesus is prioritizing at this moment. That's one of the pressures. But the crowds also have an agenda for Jesus' life. They want more healings, more exorcisms, more signs, more wonders. And so you have two groups of people putting pressure on Jesus to rethink his priorities, essentially. There's a push and a pull here, but Jesus doesn't give in. And in a a move, I think, that would leave the disciples scratching their heads, he tells them in verse 38, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Oh, everybody's looking for me. Okay. Let's go somewhere else. You know, this is a, a, a case of disappointed or broken expectations, right? <laughs> Jesus, what do you mean let's go somewhere else? They're all here. This is perfect. We're on the seaside. Get on the, by the, on the mountain. They can be down here. You can preach. It's a perfect setup. They are, understandably, you can imagine they're confused. Logically, this is the chance for them to capitalize on the momentum to secure an audience for Jesus in glory, political power. For Jesus to leave is to miss, really to miss a golden opportunity. But what the, the disciples rather needed to see in the moment and needed to be reminded of, or maybe learn for the first time, is what Jesus' priorities actually were. And so Jesus sets them straight in verse 38. Let's go somewhere else so that I may preach there also. And notice that last phrase, for that is what I came for. I came to preach. In other words, I'm not here to make an easy ascent to the Davidic throne. That will come, but that will not happen right now. I'm not here to merely heal your physical maladies. That will come. When I am on my messianic throne, when Jesus sits on the throne, the curse is reversed. Sickness, death, Satan will be cast into the pit. Right, All of these things will be taken care of. But at this point in redemptive history, Jesus says, that's not what I'm here for. I am here to preach the gospel of God. That's why I'm here. That's my priority, to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel of God. Now you say, the text doesn't say, preach the gospel of God. It just says, I came here to preach, or for that is why I came. Well, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 14, there we're given the content of Jesus' proclamation. He came to preach, but what was he preaching? Verse 14, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee doing what? Preaching the gospel of God. And saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
twice in these verses, the content of Jesus' ministry is identified as the gospel. The gospel of God. The good news. That's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. And that is what Jesus came to preach. And for Christians, and for Jesus here, the good news is the, the news concerning salvation from sin and judgment in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. It's salvation in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, pardon, redemption. All of that is packaged in the good news that Jesus was preaching. All right? Now, to be sure, the reality of, of God's gospel or good news extends to the reign of Jesus on his throne. In heaven, new heavens, new earth, with the messianic kingdom. All of that encompasses the message of the gospel. It's at that point that the nations will flock to Jesus. They'll learn from Him. They'll worship Him. And that's what the disciples are anticipating. But just not yet. They're just a little early. And the, really, throughout the gospel of Mark, we're going to see that the problem with the disciples is that they wanted the glory, and they expected the glory without the humiliation of the cross. And Jesus is going to have to teach, that, teach them that lesson, just like we have to learn the same lesson. All right, we want it easy. God, please just zap me and make me like Jesus. Please. Right, make it easy for me. Make me like Jesus, Lord. And God says, okay, I will. And it's like his hammer and chisel are out, and he's pounding the rock. Right? You're the rock. And he's pounding away at you, making you like Jesus. And every blow hurts, and it's hard, and it's not easy. And you have responsibility. We wish that he would just fashion us really quickly, you know, like clay in the potter. But that's not Jesus' way. The disciples had to learn that Jesus' way is not an easy ascent up the Davidic throne. The, it, the pathway to the glory was through the cross. And the gospel, though, also encompasses the, the full healing of our bodies. And that's what the crowds were wanting. All right, but it, it doesn't happen right now. That happens, as I said, when Jesus sits on his throne and the curse itself is reversed. Tears, sorrow, sadness, pain, all of that swept away because Jesus reverses it all. Now all of this, glory, healing, all of that is part of the gospel. But the core of the gospel Right? The core of the gospel. This is what Jesus wanted them to hear. At that moment, they didn't need to be thinking about what was coming, the disciples. And the, the, the crowds didn't need an easy, superficial remedy to their malady. What they needed most of all was the core, the, the heart-changing, powerful truth of the gospel. And Jesus doesn't put, buy into any of the pressure, and he sticks with the core content of the gospel. Namely, and this is the gospel, that sinners who, live, who have lived in hostility against God can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel in a word. Reconciliation. Hostile sinners. You and me. Lifelong rebels against God can become friends or be reconciled to God through Jesus. That's the good news. 
And all of this comes through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Now, I want to show you. I want to show you this is what Jesus proclaimed, right? So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Jesus cut through some of the superficiality to get to the core of the gospel, which is Mark 10, 45. This is a key verse in the gospel of Mark. And it captures really the most glorious truth in all of Scripture. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. To give His life as a ransom for many. This was the core of Jesus' message. He would give His life as a ransom. The ransom here is simply a payment to be paid. It was the price offered to free a slave from his bondage. The ransom price here, according to Mark 10.45, was the life of Jesus. That was the price paid to satisfy the holy, just wrath of God against you. The price to be paid was death. And Jesus offered himself, King of heaven, God incarnate, offers himself in substitution in place of wicked sinners so that sinners could be fully reconciled to God. Jesus dies in the place of sinners. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And friends, let me tell you, you know this, but this is the truth that we will sing for eternity. If this is sort of falling dully on you, uh, I would just encourage you, take up Jesus' example in Mark 1.35, Spend some time alone meditating on this reality that His life was offered for yours. This is the heart, the core of the gospel. It's the gospel. This is why we love Jesus. He died in place. He died in our place. In Christ, we have been redeemed. His life was the ransom. It was the price to be paid. And on Him the wrath of God fell, and we get all the benefits of His life. We are the beneficiaries of His blessing, joy. This is why we sing some of these songs we sing. It struck me that we were just singing the gospel. His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and recognize His work of love in Christ receive. His work of love. This is the work of love. He gives His life as a ransom for many. No greater love has any man, right? Then a man should lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8. The greatest expression, the greatest demonstration of God's love for you, Christian, and God's love for you, unbeliever, the greatest demonstration of God's love for you is giving His Son to die in your place. 
God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet what? Sinners. Christ died for us. This is the heart, the core of the gospel. And we, as Christians, we sing about this because we love Jesus. We love what he has done for us and we recognize that he died in our place. So all the blessings we enjoy in life, these nice comfortable pews, right? Uh, this comfortable building, right? the car you drove in, the clothes you have on, uh, the job you have, the salary you take in, all of those things have come to you through his substitutionary death. You know what you get without his substitutionary death? Eternal damnation. That's what you get. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. Anything above that in this life is blessing, is gift purchased by the costly blood of the Messiah. And he did it willingly. Mark 10, 45. He gave his life as a ransom for sinners. All right. So here we are. We're redeemed. That's the message. Jesus preached the message. That was his priority, the proclamation of truth. And as I've said, this ought also to be our priority as well. Proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now here's a question. All right, we're making a little turn here. Here's a question. If Jesus came to preach the gospel, which he did, why miracles? Why exorcisms? Why signs and wonders? I mean, didn't Jesus know that he would run the risk of distracting people in doing these things and and causing them to emphasize the wrong things in life? We all know ministries, churches in this area, whose priority is not proclamation, but healing, signs, wonders, dealing with the miraculous. So why did Jesus do so many healings, do so many miracles, and and why did he do that if his priority was the proclamation of the gospel? Well, you guys know, I think you know this. The answer is really somewhat simple. Uh, But because this is such a big deal, I want to spend a little bit of time walking through this with you. Uh, So many people fall here. So many people make shipwreck here when they see the signs that Jesus did as the main thing rather than seeing them what they really are. Signs were meant to be in service to Jesus' message. Let me say it another way. The miracles that Jesus did authenticated his message and his identity as the Messiah. Miracles authenticated the man and the message as being legitimately from God. All right? We see this throughout redemptive history. And I want to just take you on a little stroll, short stroll, through the redemptive history and show you that God often, when he's giving new revelation, he authenticates the man, the man who's preaching and the substance of the message with supernatural signs that authenticate the message. What's really striking is that there are three, only three major areas throughout the Bible where we see signs, wonders, 
uh, miracles, healings, that sort of thing. Only three areas. Often you, you hear about it and you think, man, every page of the Bible is full of a miracle. But that's really not the case. There's three main eras separated from about 800 years from one another where you see signs and wonders because in those moments, Jesus has appointed a new prophet or new revelation and he sends signs and wonders to confirm his messengers. And what I want to do is just walk through those with you really quickly. Three eras. The first era we see is with Moses and the Exodus. Now, this is God's pattern, confirming his man with signs and wonders. So turn with me to Exodus. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3, God called Moses through the burning bush. You remember that story. And he gave him a clear mission. And the mission was this. Go to the leaders of Israel. This is verse 15, chapter 3. And say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. God has sent me to you. That's a powerful claim. And then verse 16, God has also appeared to me and has told me to tell you, He is concerned about you. And, he, and He's concerned about what has been done to you in Egypt. And then He goes on to say, And I will bring you up out of the land of Egypt into the land of Canaan, or to the land of the Canaanites. God appoints, calls Moses, gives him a, a message, a revelation, to take to the people of Israel. And he speaks to him out of burning bush. And, and there's really, this is really, um, in almost every way, very strange. Right? I mean, people don't usually uh, come and say, God spoke to me, he spoke to me out of a burning bush. You need to listen to what I have to say because God is telling me to tell you this. Now, when people do that, naturally, we sort of raise our eyebrow and we understand this is a strange thing. Moses also knew this was strange. Moses knew what had happened to him was not normal. Right? So look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. They probably will say that. Right? What, if, what if they don't believe me, God? I, you're sending me to them with this new revelation to call them out of Egypt they're slaves, they're not warriors, and you're telling me to take them to the land of Canaan, which is occupied by the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, all the ites, and they're there. These people aren't just going to give up their land. We're not warriors. We can't take this land. Pharaoh's not going to let us go. What am I, what am, what am I going to say when I go to them and, and tell them you've sent me and they don't believe it? Well, I mean, Moses has a legitimate question, uh, I think from a human perspective, but notice what God says in uh, verse 2, Exodus chapter 4, verse 2, and the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it, rightly so. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. Now that's an act of faith, right? So he stretched out his hand 
catches the snake by the tail, and it became a staff in his hand. Amazing. Listen to this. God says, the reason I'm going to give you this and other signs, in verse 5, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Here's a sign, here's something supernatural that you can do, Moses, to authenticate you as a legitimate messenger of Yahweh. Now, that's the first era. The second era where we see this is in the era of the prophets. Now, flip over to 1 Kings. You didn't know we were going to have Bible drill today, did you? 1 Kings 17. In 1 Kings 17... Uh, we see Elijah. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history, uh, second only to Moses and John the Baptist. And, and during his ministry, James tells us that God brought a judgment on the land. And Elijah prayed that it would not rain and on a, so that the, the nation would be judged. And Elijah said, James says, rather, that Elijah prayed that that would happen, and it happened. And for three years, there was no rain. Can you imagine three years, no rain? Well, God, uh, because he knows that Elijah has gained the ire of Ahab, sends him uh, to a place called Zarephath, which is on the Mediterranean coast. It's a pagan city, but God had appointed a certain widow in Zarephath to take care of Elijah. But at some point, Elijah, uh, not Elijah, the widow's son gets sick, and, and he dies. And the lady gets angry with Elijah. She's not happy. She's confused as to what has happened. If this is a man of God, why, why is this happening to me? And she's confused. And Elijah, uh, I want you to actually look what he does in verse 20 and 21. Verse 20, he starts with prayer. And then verse 21, Then he, Elijah, stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Now there's a, a, a great example that what you want comes on the other side of prayer. We want this child to live. Elijah prays. God hears the prayer. This is in conformity, of course, to the Lord's decree, but he's appointed as a means to his decree Elijah, faithfully praying. All right, verse 23. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Amazing. Now, verse 24 is actually the key here. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know, after what I've just seen, now I know that you are a man of God. And the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now I know. On the other side of this supernatural raising of my son, now I know, not that you can do miracles, but that the word you speak is the word of God. Signs authenticate the messenger and validate his message. Now, the third era we see miracles like this, is obviously in the New Testament during the, the ministry of Jesus and his apostles. At this point, 
In history, we see more signs and wonders, miracles, healings than at any other point in human history. Now, why is that? Why are there more miracles around Jesus' ministry than any other point in history? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I would wager that it's because Jesus is the greatest revelation of God to man, period. Thus, more signs, more wonders, more miracles, all of this validating Jesus and His message of forgiveness of sins for sinners like you. All of these signs, wonders, validating Jesus. Now, in Jesus, we see the face of the living God. This is the the culminative revelation of God is through Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to know God the Father? Look to Jesus, and you can see him. Well, naturally, in Jesus' ministry, we see countless miracles, wonders orbiting around him. And Jesus makes it clear why this is the case in John 10. You can flip over there with me. John 10, verse 25. John 10, 25. Jesus says, The works I do in my Father's name testify of me or about me. The works I do in my Father's name testify. They bear witness about me. And then if you jump down to verse 37 and 38, he says, If I do not do the works of my Father, wonders, miracles, healing, all these things, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Look to the works as an authentication of my message. All right, And we see the same thing in Acts 2.22. Peter is preaching in his sermon at Pentecost. He says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Jesus was a man attested, authenticated, validated by God through signs and wonders. All of these works authenticated Jesus as the true Messiah and authenticated His gospel message of forgiveness for sinners like you and me. Now, I could give you more examples, uh, but I I just want to show you that as history goes on, Jesus passes the baton to the apostles. The apostles are given the ability to do signs and wonders. Um, Acts 14 says that God... Uh, was with the apostles and was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Acts 14.3, that's a clear text. God was testifying that what they preached, the gospel message they preached, was truly from the living God with signs and wonders. Now, I think you get the point. 
God always validates his message and authenticates his messengers. This is the pattern we see throughout history. It's what we see in the New Testament. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the greatest authenticating sign that the message that Jesus proclaimed and lived is truly from God? What's the greatest sign? The resurrection. Which is why we celebrate every Sunday, the day that the Lord was rose, rose from the dead. We come here, we celebrate Him because His resurrection is the vindication of Him and the authentication of the gospel that we love. Alright? This is the message we love and it's been authenticated, validated by God through signs and wonders, chief among them being the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's the question. What are we to do with all of this? A lot of information. What are we to do with it? Well, it's really simple. The message of God has been validated, authenticated, and proven through the resurrection of Jesus, chief, And now, it's our job not to go around seeking to do miracles, signs, wonders, and healing people. That's not what we imitate from our Lord. What we imitate from Him is the proclamation of the validated message. That's what we do. This message has changed the world. For for 2,000 years, it's been the topic of conversation. Why? Well, because what happened then was so earth-shattering that it's still changing our lives even today. The message of the gospel has been authenticated. Friend, doubt it no more. Doubt it no more. Jesus is not in the tomb. He's risen, and He's alive, and He will return. The gospel of God has been validated. Now, our job is to follow in Christ's steps and proclaim that message to your coworkers, to your children, to our neighbors. Ours is the responsibility, the privilege, to follow in the steps of Christ and courageously proclaim the gospel message that has been proven, affirmed. In God's kindness, He has delayed the return of our Lord. This is his kindness. Why has he not returned? Because he loves sinners. And he's delayed the return of our Lord so that we, you and I, have the, uh, the opportunity, the time to go and proclaim the gospel message and, and, and call sinners to come and eat and drink to, to enjoy what God has done in Christ. That's our privilege. That's our call. And it's on each one of you. And me as well. Now, I want to show you, lastly, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. I just want to show you that this is your responsibility. Because Jesus had validated his message, verse 39 says that he went throughout all Galilee preaching, doing what he said he came to do. And the apostles, we know, followed in his steps. They went about proclaiming the same message. And we see this play out in the book of Acts. 
And I want to show you Acts 8, something that's really important for you to see. You remember in Acts 7, Stephen was stoned for, for proclaiming the gospel message. Remember, Stephen was a deacon. He's going to see that. He wasn't the main preaching pastor at the church. He wasn't an elder. Acts 7 says that he was a deacon, although he did preach. <clears throat> he was a, a deacon, and he had preached, and he was stoned for proclaiming the gospel message. If Stephen wanted to keep his life, what could he have done? Close your mouth. Just be quiet. Don't announce this divinely authenticated message, Stephen. Just keep it to yourself. You heard that before? All right. Don't talk about religion at work. Don't talk about religion here. All right, let's just keep the peace. Well, Stephen would not, and, and the disciples throughout history have refused to be quiet about this message. And we're all rebuked by them, really. But in Acts 7, going into Acts 8, great persecution has come upon the church. Acts 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that's Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Now, the way out of that persecution, be quiet. Stop announcing the message. Continuing verse 1, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? Except who? The apostles. That's important. So, who was scattered? The church. Church. The apostles, the leaders of the church at that point, stay, and the church is scattered. Now, verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Now, I want you to look at verse 4. Therefore... Those who had been scattered, the church, went about doing what? Preaching the word. It wasn't the apostles. It was the church. It was those who had been scattered. Storming in the, the persecution, storming into their house, taking, separating families, hurting, persecuting, killing, martyring all of these Christians. They're scattered. And they keep proclaiming the message. Why? I would submit to you. It's because they really believed it. Right? They believed it. They had seen the signs. They had seen the wonders. They saw His hands, friends. They saw it. And they were convinced this is the only truth that matters. My peace at work, my peace in my extended family is irrelevant to this truth. My respectability at the restaurant doesn't matter. This matters. The proclamation of the message is the key. And friends, I would say our health as a church, your health as a Christian hinges on you being convinced of this priority. And just like prayer is a measure and a gauge of your spiritual maturity, I would say 
proclamation of the truth. Often we say evangelism. But proclaiming the truth, not securing decisions. It's not what we're about. It's not what the disciples were about. They were proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Salvation for sinners through Christ. That dedication to the proclaimed message, that is the real barometer of your spiritual health. Friends, I I will tell you, pray for me. Because I am not there. I have a long way to grow. That's certainly true. Honestly, just yesterday, I wrote a message on this. And just yesterday, I failed. But by God's grace, I'm resolved to do better. I am resolved with God's help to proclaim this truth. I just call you to join me. Let's do it together. Let's be a church marked by belief, confidence in the Lord. Confidence in his message. It's been authenticated. It's been proven. Right? We look at Elijah and Moses and we think, why did the Israelites, why would they not believe the Lord? Why did they not believe Moses? Had they, they not seen this, the, the sea split wide open? Why would they doubt him? Friends, the same could be said of you and I. Right? We have seen it authenticated. We have this whole book proving the message. Why would we question it? I am resolved with God's help to do better here. And I want you to join me and let's, let's with God's help, be men and women marked by the bold and courageous proclamation of the gospel we love to sing about. Right? It makes perfect sense. The thing that doesn't make sense is for us to just sit on it hide it. How unloving. How, how unfaithful. So let's, with God's help, do better. Amen? God, I'll resolve, and I'm committed to that. If you join me, let's do it together. All right? Let me pray that the Lord would help us be more faithful here. Father, we confess our failure on so many fronts. But what baffles us is how we can be so ashamed of the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that you would pardon our sin in this area because it is great. And, Lord, that you would fill us with confidence in your truth that we would be a people uh, not marked by coward cowardly silence, but by bold proclamation of the gospel. Lord, thank you for the assurance that we have that the gospel is truth, the greatest assurance being the resurrection of Christ. We thank you for that. And we ask, Lord, that you would truly fill us with confidence in the gospel message so that we would be just like the church in Acts 8. As we go out from this place, that we would be marked by the faithful announcement of your goodness to sinners through Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would help us for your namesake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.